You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Mark Redfield interviews Debbie Roshan, interviews Mark Redfield. Recorded in June 2021. We now take you under the streets of New York on the subway, headed Midtown. What are you working on right now? Oh, I am working on a few things, Mark, a few really cool things. The most important is my book. I'm doing a whole bunch of, um, and I only say that because it's, you know, a decade in the making. When you write a book like this, which is not a novel, it's, you know, takes place during a very emotional part of your life, like a bio, but just focusing on a particular part, um, it's something you have to sort of contemplate in your mind and and kind of live with for quite a while before you actually start. So that's why I say most important in the sense of, like, emotionally and time-wise. Um, other things, however, that I'm working on, I'm doing a lot of audio stuff. I'm, you know, there's some films coming up and stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff kind of baking and working and getting ready to travel for the first mm-hmm. time during COVID is sort of a, a strange experience. I know a few people yeah. have already done it, but you know, it's a whole different animal altogether. What's the name of the book for those who haven't heard about it yet? The name of the book is From the Underbelly to the Underground. And in it, you're basically the launch that you're talking about your teenage life. Yeah. 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 Literally from the underbelly of uh, the streets you know, trying to survive and live as a preteen through early and mid-teens, you know, coming from, like, the foster care system um, and halfway houses and and all that kind of stuff and literally the underbelly of a city. Like, you know, what what the day-to-day experiences and events that went on what was going on, like what happened, what actually happened. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to hear that, but it's another thing to 
know the um, to the extent and the details. The details are everything. I mean, that's what I love about all art, really, be it filmmaking or literal paintings or anything at all. It's like everything's in the details. So absolutely, um, and it's, that's and it's because you you ran away, you you broke out of not of foster care, and you were on your yeah. own, and literally uh, money. Uh, roof over your head, food, everything was, you were on your own at that early age. And uh, in that time period, late 70s, early 80s, yeah? And then you Yeah, found, late 70s, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, me, I'm, you know, 14. I'm a kid who's going to conventions, film conventions as a, as a film fan, and I'm making Super 8 films and, you know, basically not thinking about the harsh realities of the world whatsoever. And um, we, we kind of get into the, the business, into theater, uh, uh, about the same time in our lives uh, in that period. And Because and, uh, I was making some, some, some films then and, and just sort of went in that direction. So I imagine that working on this book, now you're bearing down on it. So now you're editing your work and you're really combing through it and getting into shape for publication now. So I'm very excited. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a journey. It's quite a journey. It's um I don't know what it's like to write a novel myself, but in fact it's um it's it's very intense and it's the type of thing that, you know, I've always said whether it turns into something amazing, that's great, and if it turns out to be something that helps a few people, that's great too. And, you know, I'm, so I'm, there's just no bad way that it could really go in, in a sense, yeah. like, you know, what, and I'm not talking about bad reviews or something silly like that. No, I'm talking, that, yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah just in, in the real sense, <clears throat> because no matter what you do, there's going to be good and bad as far as like that stuff goes, but, and who cares, you know, like who cares that that's the way it is. It's, um, if you can't stand it, don't do anything, you know? And yeah, uh, I mean, the other side is you have to be able to take it. Yeah, I mean, writing isn't easy. Um, I'm writing scripts, I'm writing novels, and it's a lonely work. What was the, in, in, in working on the book, and I'm hesitant to call it an autobiographical, well, it's autobiographical, but it's not really an, was it hard to do the deep dive? in memory uh, and, and go back to describe certain moments. I can, I can only imagine that, you know, when you're trying to put this on paper, um, I mean, were there times that were difficult and it, did you have someone that you could share the work with as you were, you know, kind of open the door occasionally and, and share what you were writing or has it all been, is it just you at this point still? Well, mostly it's just me, but I certainly have shared it with a couple of friends' pieces. And just to get like a sense, not even feedback so much, but just, you know, a reaction. Because certainly it... Yeah, are you communicating clearly? Are you... Yeah, that kind of reaction? Just, you know, yeah. Um, See what... That that includes... That included, but also, like, you know, is this, um, 
like almost a testing ground, not even so much technically, but like the things that I'm saying are so, they're so insanely intense. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody, it's not that I would stop what I was doing, but, you know, will this kind of like, you know, freak somebody out, so to speak. And I know there's a lot <laughs> deep dive, you know, deeper dives, I should say, than, you know, what I have to say, I'm sure. But at the same time, just to get like a um, a reaction, like, you know, if, um, you know, of the material more than the, say, technicality of it, like grammar and stuff like that. Um, mm. So for that reason, but were some of the deep dives difficult? Yeah, I mean... Some of it is really uh, quite the process because in order to get on with your life and do all the things that you want to do with your life, you have to kind of compartmentalize all of this stuff and put it away and get on with your life so it's not ruling your life or um, affecting your life. Uh, And so that's what I did. So now you're asking yourself to all of those doors that you cemented and bricked up for your own safety Mm -hmm. so that you can survive and, and, you know, exist in this world without being a complete mess. Um, now we we need to, you know, jackhammer all of that cement and the bricks down and actually not only acknowledge it, but share it. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's both, um, exhilarating and, uh, frightening, but all, you know, powerful nonetheless. But if it wasn't frightening, then it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be good. You know, it wouldn't be worth doing this stuff. No, it would not be worth doing. So I, um, you know, I, uh, I, 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 I don't know what to say. I support that. I cannot wait to read this. I mean, I, I know your work over the years as an actor. I, I know your podcast. I've uh, known you know the things that you've written you know, for magazines and things. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I cannot wait to, uh, to read this. I really can't. Oh, well, thank you. I can't wait for you to read it as well. So what are you working on now? Well, funny you should ask that, but, um, <laughs> like you, <laughs> like yes, you, there's, a, there's always, <laughs> there's always a handful of things. Um, but literally at the hour, um, uh, for you, with you, uh, I just finished, I hope, uh, an adaptation of a play that we'll be doing as an audio drama called I Married a Fly, and I'm about yeah. to get that script with you. It's, there was a, the word that I keep using is horse trading. Um, it's just been a little bit back and forth with the playwright because it's a two-hour play, and I'm trying to serve him and tell his story and his characters and Hopefully it's funny and then at the end touching because it is on the surface of uh, a parody of, uh, well, the fly monster movies, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is, but it is about people who come to grips with a loved one who has terminal illness. Now that sounds like it just drops off a cliff into heavy duty land. But, uh, so there's been that into shaping it into a 74 minute thing. I'm polishing up. Uh, a novel. I'm finishing the Cheney murder case, which is uh, mm. a complete piece of fiction about Lon Cheney um, in uh, in the late teens in Hollywood and very early Hollywood before uh, he becomes a star at Universal. I, 
basically in a nutshell it's a it's a picaresque story that sort of jumps along he quits universal and becomes intrigued by the death of an extra on a film set and just on his own begins to try to figure out what happens to this kid and um that leads him to to borrow your term because i love it uh the underbelly of um Mm -hmm. Film, early film in Los Angeles and uh, theater because the, it ends up in San Francisco in 1918. So there's that. So there's the ongoing audio dramas that we're doing. I'm recording audio books. Uh, we have a couple of titles that go out every month. And uh, the new one in the schedule that we're wedging in the summer is um, Mark, an adaptation of Mark Wheatley's comic book, uh, Frankenstein Mobster which is going to be a lot of fun. It's this eight-issue thing that he published in the early 2000s, uh, kind of a mashup between classic monsters and literally mobsters and gangsters. And so um, that's a lot of fun, and I didn't expect it. I've been kind of nudging Wheatley over the years. You know, I, would, I think this would make a good something. And he's been trying to sell it as a film, of course, and other things. And uh, a couple of months ago, he said, okay, let's do it. And I said, what? And... Uh, so it's pushing my summer schedule along, but I'm grateful for it. I think it's going to be a fun project. Um, so we're just getting started on that. So, And I'm sure that there's a hundred other things. Like you, there's always several irons in the fire. And, um, yeah. I, I'm, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a, isn't it? It's a glass half full time. Um, you know, this whole pandemic thing, how it's changed, um, you know, I haven't made a film in a while. You haven't been on set for a while. It allows us to write. It allows us to record. Um, and things are changing, you know. Production is mm-hmm. coming back. And conventions yeah. and appearances will come back. And uh, But I, I've, you know, yeah, a little stir-crazy. I know you didn't ask this question, but... Um, <laughs> um, but I'm, you're allowed to answer. I'm, I'm, are you st- I'm, Hey, Mark, are you being stir crazy right now? Are you getting stir crazy? Yes, for God's sake. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, you've been dying to say this. Now, please talk about it. And, and no, I but have seriously. This, um, yeah, and I Jones for. It's funny the places that I miss the most, and and New York City is one of them. And. Uh-huh. Um, there's a couple of audio projects. I mean, not that everything has to be coupled with work. Not that I need an expense account uh, excuse. I love Manhattan. And, uh, yeah. But there is an audio drama that I'm going to ask you about months down the road or early next year. Uh, there's a guy that I write with uh, named Stuart Voitilla, and we've percolating on some things. And we've uh, launched a series, a novel, series of novels called, uh, the series is called Vampire Hunters Incorporated. And our vampire hunter, Bertrand Wells, he's based in New York. He runs the, uh, the New York office of Van Helsing International. There is a novel out there called Cult of the Nosferatu. It will be an audio book uh, in July. And uh, there is, for the first time, uh, I've outlined a script for an audio drama called Rhapsody in Blood, which is a love letter mm-hmm. to New York and a Bertrand Wells. Uh, uh, and I'm asking you, actually... For the first time, we, we're, you know, we are going to be doing these uh, I Marry the Fly and the Autumn of Edgar Allan Poe together as audio dramas. But uh, there, there's a character, 
Stella that I'm writing that uh, I'm going to ask. Stella. You. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have to. We have to. Get do you get? Do you, do you get to in. say that? Do you get to uh, say? We, I'm, I, I'm the writer. <laughs> I'm the writer. I'm God. I'm the director. I'm the other guy. Um, yeah. Yes, we can do this. Um, but it's a it's a little touchy. You know, these are just action adventure vampire horror stories. Um, Cult of the Nosferatu is pretty epic, but uh, Rhapsody in Blood has a different kind of epic quality because, uh, you know, it's funny, and you didn't ask me this, but uh, a lot of my villains in the fiction, that whether they're audiobooks or whatever, they tend to be, and it is a reflection of our times, they tend to be white supremacists. They tend to be mm-hmm. people who want to control other people. And um, yeah. Good. Anyway, I, I'm not, I don't want to bore listeners or you with Rhapsody and Blood right now, but I hope you love it. I hope you say yes when I get around to finishing the script. So maybe maybe by the end of this year, we'll we'll be on to that finally. But uh, otherwise, yeah, we have um, other other Vampire Hunter Incorporated stuff coming up soon. So um, yeah, very cool. So. I mean, it's <laughs> it's love zombies have always loved zombies. <laughs> Time to switch it up. Right? Time to switch it up. <laughs> My, um, the first feature that I acted in, it was a zombie picture. And I think it was uh-huh. made in, I think it was made in 80 or 81. It is also, and God, I hope he's not listening. It is also the worst movie ever made. I mean, <laughs> and, and, and that's full stop. Well, period. there's a I, lot. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. There's a no, lot, this, no, this is it. This is in its own category. Oh. And, um, well, now I want to know what it is, and now I want to see it, because <laughs> I love, love a good, bad movie. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to watch. In well, a good it's way, I have a great time. Well, you know what's really weird about it? Okay, it has two titles, and our friend Lloyd Kaufman put it out uh, on DVD years ago. Um, oh, when it first came out, oh my God, we discovered um, that there were rabid collectors of this film, that it had a fan base. Its original title is, let me get this straight, because there's two titles, and I can't remember now which one comes first. I think the first title is called, one of its titles is Curse of the Screaming Dead. Mm. And um, we found this rabid collectors group, they were buying and selling they were trying to find it in uh vhs clamshell boxes and spending lots of money in the 90s on this thing and uh then lloyd put it out under the other title which escapes me at the moment and that's where of course a lot of people saw it it never aired on television i don't think it's anywhere streaming the curse of the streaming dead and um You know, it was shot on 16 millimeter. It is so incredibly mm-hmm. murky. <laughs> that there really? Are okay. Nighttime, there are some nighttime scenes of zombies walking around um, where, uh, you know, they're just little white blob faces kind of floating around. And it's just so... Uh, the, uh, Tony, bless his heart, he did everything and he made it for like $5,000 on film. Right. And he was, and he was working in a lab and he processed his own film and he sold it to mogul video because 
they came up with great box art. And so it was in all of the liquor store mom and pop video stores in the 80s. And then, like I said, Lloyd put it out um, with a real cartoonish cover of a Confederate zombie. So anyway, I get a call from Ooh. a friend. You probably recognize that. It's a great cover. And uh, yeah, it wasn't a photo. I, it wasn't a shot from the it's movie. A, it's a... Yeah, the, <clears throat> if the name comes to you, tell me, because I'd bet you anything, even though I haven't seen it, that I would recognize the name from the Trauma album. Yeah, and that's, that's why a lot of late 90s, early 2000s film fans, when I was promoting Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and other things, that's how they knew Curse of the Screaming Dead, Dead was because of Trauma. And... Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> Stephen Thrower did this book on exploitation pictures in the 80s and gave it like uh, 20 pages, an entire chapter. And uh, he's British, wow. and I was at a show in England when I saw the book for the first time, and I was gobsmacked at photos I'd never seen before of me on the set. And it's a very simple story. I was minding my own business, and a friend of mine Tony the Malinowski, the director, was shooting in his backyard some zombie stuff, and he called me up and he said, um, bring your makeup kit. My friend Tony, who I knew Tony, needs to do some zombie makeups. So I went up there and just with grease paint. I didn't have anything in my kit. It was a stage makeup kit. So I'm just literally painting, you know, shriveled up prune faces, you know, making zombies and things. And I had grown mm-hmm. a beard. I, I was uh, in college, and I was doing a summer theater thing. I was doing a musical called Dear World, which is based on Mad Woman or Shio. And I was playing the rag picker who is a street person who lives on the street. And um, so I had grown this beard for the play because I didn't want to glue one on in the summertime. Tony saw the beard on this on little Mark who's coming in to help do some zombie makeups. And he said, you want to play the main zombie? You want to play the captain? And I said, sure. So the next weekend, they shot on a farm and dug this big pit and buried me in this mm-hmm. pit so I could come, come out of the grave. And uh, that was my first shot in the movie. And um, we ended up shooting the, zomb- the rest of the zombie stuff in my backyard uh, one night. So, um, yeah, that's my first film as an actor, I think, that isn't an amateur film or a, or a Super 8 film um, was uh, Curse of the That Spain was Day. released. That that was released, yeah. And it could, I had, who knows? It could be on Trauma <laughs> now. That the YouTube channel that I, Lloyd has, you, you never know. Yeah, I don't, I don't see why not. I mean, you know, I don't see why Tony would ever pull it. We take you now to Midtown Manhattan. What's your, and I want to start negative and go positive. If there is a more positive human that I am, that I know, it's you. And as we work together and as we get to know each other, we'll reveal colors, we'll get to know each other better, we'll laugh, we'll have good times, we'll do <laughs> great work. Do you promise? Do you promise? I absolutely yeah. promise I try to make oh, virtual okay. sets, happy sets. I can't guarantee 
good craft service if you're recording in your own recording booth for the audio drama. Yeah. But I'll do what I can. That's true. I'll send, I'll send oh, okay. the package. But yes. <clears throat> because every time I read something you've written, every time I listen to you on uh, somebody else's podcast, your message is incredibly, and I love this, it's just incredibly positive, particularly for filmmakers, for creators. Very encouraging, very positive, very glass half full. And, um, but you've been in the business a long time. We've been in the business the same amount of time since about the same years. Mm-hmm. We've had a lot of bad experiences. So I'm just going to spitball yeah. and say, What's the worst onset experience you've ever had? Well, you know, I really have to go to the one, probably, if anybody has listened to me ever before, already knows the story. So I won't go deep into the story, but I'll, I'll tell you what it was and why it, it continues to be the worst, which is the accident, the hand, uh, the cutting off of the fingers with the machete that, should have been fake but um that i I have to say that and not just because that's a horrible thing that should never happen on a set accidents happen on sets i mean people have died making movies and i'm talking about right where accidents happen but there's certain things that could have been avoided with that aside the reason that will always be um the worst is because the ramifications of getting over it were years in the making. Like, it destroyed my safety, feeling of safety and confidence, which you have to have if you're creative. You have to have Mm -hmm. a sense of um, uh, safety, like creative safety, to do your best work. And sometimes you don't get that for other reasons, but, you know, for at least two years, maybe a little more afterwards... I was so, there was like PTSD, so to speak, to throw that term mm-hmm. around, but there really was. I mean, I was, my little safety zone, which I sort of always would describe as, you know, the circle that exists within the square frame of the camera, I want to at least be able to be so free I can express and, right. you know, I'm not even thinking about anybody else who's there. So I'm that you're not, you're not self-conscious of it, you're not aware of it, you can, you can, yeah. you can be a free actor. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just completely free and just go nuts with whatever I'm doing. Even if I'm doing something subtle, just go, go nuts in the sense of just really be in it. And um, my, it kind of ripped away my um, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but my, my pure, I guess it would be, sense of security and freedom within mm-hmm. that little space, which was always my favorite space to be because, okay, here I could be as creative as I want to be. And yeah, when yeah. you take that from somebody um, or it is taken from somebody, then that's something that you have to, like, work again, like work from scratch to, to try to rebuild that. So I definitely have to go with, with that particular experience as the worst well, because of the years of work. The, of course, and it's perfectly understandable. On the one side is the, the physical is repairing itself. There are surgeries and there are still, um, if I understand, not 100% uh, 
use of what is it the right hand or yeah the right hand yeah yeah, yeah. It's true but the thing you're living with for much longer even though you may have tamed it or allowed it or confronted it is of course the emotional and the psychological of that yeah i mean right i've had my share of stage injuries and things and film set injuries <clears throat> but um that is that's a big one that's top shelf i get that do you mind mentioning what film it is i'm always never remembering what film it was well you know i i never like to say because um that's fine number one it's uh well yeah for a lot of reasons but that yeah that doesn't it's not that it doesn't matter on in the sense of like you know people shouldn't be held accountable but it's not something that i yeah i share because it's like no it doesn't get that attention from me it doesn't yeah. it doesn't deserve that attention it's i not, uh, i get that yeah so um so no i mean just as a you know not a conversation stopper, but just as a a point of, um, you know, no. It's like it, it goes in, into the box of, you know, bad, 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 right. bad, mm. bad. So, no, I guess. And for you, what would your worst experience be on a film set? Well. If you've been uh, injured and stuff, is it emotional? Is it creative? Is it? Like a physical thing like that? What would be something you know, that it's, happened to you? It's funny. My, um, I think my worst moment on a film set was, was emotional. Um, mm -hmm. The injuries, you know, I've always... I'm the kind of actor that... Um, and of all the stage work I've done, it's a, it's a, it's a contact sport. You know, it's physical. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so not just plays where I've done stage combat, because uh, in a, a regional theater doing Henry the Fourth Part One, uh, the beginning of a battle sequence that was uh, choreographed by the great B.H. Barry, as a matter of fact. Uh, the other actor occasionally was drunk that started the choreography, and uh, he's supposed to hit me in the back of the legs with a shield, and he ended up hitting me square in the back of my head with the shield. Uh. And I saw like a target of white light come from the right hand, and I thought, okay, this is bad. And I run off stage, and there's a stage manager on headsets on the ground floor right off the set. And I took my chainmail off, uh, just with one with my right hand, and just pull it off my head. And like you soak a rag in a bucket of water, the blood just yeah. went all over the door, oh. the exit door there. And she went white oh. and was calling up to the booth, you know, and I got eight stitches in the back of my head. And my favorite part of the story is that um, the woman, the person who watched me all night, so that, you know, because of the thing about concussion and when I yeah. came back from the yeah. hospital, um, was Lorraine Toussaint. Uh, she, was, uh, she was in that show. Lorraine, you know, oh. you know, from Orange is the New Black, and uh, yes, yes, wonderful, wonderful actor, and she was sweet enough. We we were great friends back then, and she just kept a watch on me. So, in on stage, I've I've cut myself and needed stitches. Uh, opening night of Sleuth and Anthony Schaefer's play, 
um, cut my hand. Oh, this is one that I hate. This is a story, a theater story I love to tell about stage injury. We had rigged the set. If you know Sleuth and if you know the movie with Lawrence Olivier and Michael Caine, I was playing the Milo, the Michael Caine role. And in the, mm-hmm. in the play, at the end of the first act, that's when Andrew Wyke, the Lawrence Olivier character, is turning the tables. And he has Milo dressed as a clown, breaking into his house to steal jewelry so that Milo can have the money to have the affair with Andrew's wife. Complicated, yeah? Okay, so we had rigged these things with a, the prop gun, was a prop gun, blanks, but we had rigged these things in the set to prove that the gun had bullets in it for the audience. We rigged these little gimmicks to uh, break bric-a-brac on the mantle of the fireplace so that when uh-huh. the prop gun was aimed and fired, a little mousetrap thing would like spring and the, the thing would shatter. And So rehearsals were all great. Dress rehearsals were all great with all the physical effects. And this particular night, opening night, and if and spoiler alert, if you don't know the film or the movie, Milo comes back disguised as a detective to fuck with Andrew and to scare the hell out mm-hmm. of him. So in the play, I've got 15 minutes to put on padding, change my clothes, uh, put on a mustache, a nose, a wig, jowl padding, all of this kind of stuff to then become this detective, you know, this, this other guy. And... Um, mm-hmm. So he gets me to the top of the stairs. He's got me frightened. I'm on my knees. He's got a gun to the back of my head, and he hits me with a golf club. And I fall down the stairs, and I break my fall with my left hand. Immediately in the dark, in the blackout of, the, of Act One, I, my mm. hand is soaking. <laughs> oh, no. So, Not so again. I go back <laughs> Oh, Here's the stage manager, sees my hand covered in blood, one of the shards, ah. of one of the pieces of pottery, just like ah. a blowtorch through butter, just went into the heel of my hand. So we're wow. wrapping this up to stop the bleeding, and I, I have a pair of gloves in my coat pocket as the detective. But all I can think about is, I have fucked this up for the audience, because I don't know how long it's going to take me to change and put on my makeup now. I had it clocked to 15 minutes, right? But now with the, yeah. with me bleeding to death, I'm like, I have screwed this up. They're going to know that this long intermission is because, you know, he's doing... And I, all these thoughts go through your head. Um, yeah. Lots of great yeah. stage injuries, and the one on set was I was shot. I think I told you this story. Um, we were doing yeah. the last job. Oh. And um, uh-huh. literally, there, there are a series of wide shots where the director wanted to see both of us. We draw at the same time. My guy gets shot and killed. His daughter comes in, there's tears, roll credits. And um, so we did a couple of wide shots, and I'm a good shot. I, I really am. Well, Michael Hagen, who played my opposite, is also a very good shot. And there was a take where we draw on each other, arms extended, six guns, fire, and you have to, you have to cock the hammer back on a, on a single shooting six gun. So there are all these little things, and boom, and I feel white-hot heat on the back of my, again, my left hand. My left hand gets a lot of abuse. No, no, it was my right hand, because I crossed through, and I feel this white heat on the back, and we're 20, 22 feet apart, which means that if he was aiming for my head, he would have hit me in the head. That whole horror of he could have hit me in the eye. 
It's all fun and games. Yeah. It was, but it was a piece of water. Yeah. We had a professional firearms guy. He was scrupulous. He took the weapons away in between takes. He didn't play. Everybody was good. But a piece of wadding from his gun went 22 feet. And because he was ra- aiming right at my torso, where my hand was extended, blocked it, hit me right in the back of my hand. But, uh, <gasps> so real quick, wow. my worst yeah. experience, purely emotional. The first feature film I produced is uh, a drama called Cold Harbor. It was written and directed by uh, a good friend of mine I went to college with, and and we had reconnected after college when he was working for a Fox affiliate, and he was producing commercials. And uh, I was an actor, and I was trying to get, you know, a movie off the ground. And the movie I was trying to do was uh, based on Poe's The Telltale Heart. And uh, I made some headway, and uh, he had a movie called uh, Brothers Keeper, which eventually we made as Cold Harbor. And it was a a drama about a fictionalized story uh, about three brothers um, dealing with their dad's suicide. And Mm -hmm. after, after they, after the funeral, they go to his, uh, his beach place and they deal with him. He is the ghost lives in the house and they have to deal with, each other, they, the, I'm the oldest brother in, in the film, and, and uh, uh, Adam Rose played the, um, the 18-year-old high school student. There's four of us. <clears throat> so um, we hooked up, and he told me he was trying to make this film. and He was going through all these life changes. He had broken up with somebody. He drove across country and then drove up to Saskatchewan. And he calls me from a phone booth in Saskatchewan and says, Mark, when I come home, we're going to make Cole Harbor. And I said, look, on your drive back in your beat-up little white pickup truck, I want you to think about this really hard. We have the money to shoot the film on film. We, um, it was <clears throat> Super 16. We got the leftover stock from uh, a TV show that was uh, shooting on 16. We got it, got it really cheap. They said, look, we've got the money to get it in the can, to pay a crew, <clears throat> do all the wrong things. You know, uh, mm-hmm. shoot a film out of town. You know, have to rent property, have to rent a boat that we can burn. You know, these are all the things that are in the script, even though it seems like it's a very small drama. And we know too much. You know, you've been in filmmaking and the commercial business for years. We know a lot of professionals that have said yes to working on this. You better think about it long and hard when you come back. If you still want to do it, I'll do it. But know that it's going to take us a couple of years to finish it, which indeed it did because we spent our own money. We, all of the money we spent was our own, but it took, mm-hmm. we didn't have, we didn't have another fifty to $100,000 just for post-production. Right. So we spent a couple of months, <clears throat> we're both Tom Brandau, who just passed away a couple of months ago of cancer. My, perhaps, one of my best friends, and we became such great friends in the pre-production of Cold Harbor. Um, I, my goal in working in Tom's sandbox was to keep telling his story, but fictionalizing it. So it worked for a, an audience of civilians who didn't know anything about the story. It's not autobiographical. Mm-hmm. It is to extents, but it has to work on its own. My own, I come from a family of brothers. My own kind of brotherly stories got woven into it. 
we, we became these great, we spent every weekend for three months. We're in Baltimore. We drive to Delaware and to the eastern shore of Maryland. We looked at every, because a condominium is not photogenic, I wanted to put the father's house as a beach house on the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. We looked at every beachfront property from southern Maryland all the way to Broadkill Beach, Delaware. Mm-hmm. And then we found one, and I negotiated with the owners, and then we found another house that we used as the to house some people, and we made friends with uh, two hotels in the area so that we could house all of our crew. At our peak, we were maybe 18 to 22 people for 18 days. So it was sizable. We had to feed them. You know, I'm making all these deals. Uh, we start shooting. We, we go out there, um, and it's an intense. We're out there two weeks before. Other crew are assembling wonderful people. And uh, actors come. And we shoot for an intensive 18-day period. As you know from producing, you get no time off. No, Um, no. He's also the art director. And one day on the set, and I'm sorry for such a long-winded story, but Tom truly, I mean, he just passed away a couple of months ago, and he truly was one of my best friends. Yeah. And he, um, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's one of the, you know, everybody says this. He's one of the nicest guys you ever want to meet. One of the gentlest. He was teaching. He he spent the latter half of his life, his career teaching. Mm-hmm. I was the one who talked him into going into this uh, theater graduate program so he could get his teaching degree because they weren't offering anything in film. And he did that so he could get his teaching degree. Ended up teaching uh, in Moorhead uh, University of uh, Minnesota teaching film for uh, a couple of decades and um, wonderful teacher i mean um mike flanagan uh the director uh where tom and i the three of us were great pals in, in fact it was tom and mike who uh, introduced me to um to uh ellie torres who played the lead in my jekyll and hyde i mean so very tight knit mm-hmm. very open very creative we worked on each other's projects um so this is my first feature film. It's Tom's first feature film. And about halfway through the schedule, we were, uh, our locations, our, our exteriors were grouped in, in days of two to just knock them out, shoot them out, and get on. And Because uh, we always had cover on any of the interiors with the beach houses. And uh, VFW Hall stood for our police station, and we were in the parking lot of the VFW Hall shooting the police station stuff. Mm-hmm. And Tom was under a lot of stress. And people didn't realize, and maybe this resonates to you working on your book, I wonder, there are times when you're doing a deep dive or where you're doing something, and it is touching nerves. A lot of people used to think, Tom is under such stress because this is so personal. This is the story of his father and his, him and his brothers. And... The reality of that was, no, that's not what was creating stress. Tom has had the distance. This happened when Tom was a teenager. Uh, Tom has written several drafts of the script. Tom and I have spent months working on the script. If the, ex- if the demons are exercised, they're exercised. Tom is stressed right. because he and I are spending our own fucking money. Tom and I have yeah. no other resources. We have one shot. Yeah. I'm writing... I, yes. I'm we we are we bought our first cell phones because of this project, and we're amazed they worked in Rehoboth, Delaware. This is, uh, right. this is okay. So 
So, and literally, we transferred a large amount of money into a company account, and he was going to the ATM every day to take out 400 in cash. This is uh, what was yeah. stress. So one, yeah. day, one day on the set, in the parking lot, we were shooting the police station stuff, and he says to me, or he says out loud, he blurts to several people, it's kind of a shotgun thing to several crew people. And there was a reason for this that was unclear to me. And remember, I'm also wearing the hat as the producer. Right. And he said, I am serving too many goddamn masters on this set. Well, huh. yeah. we, we, have, we had some really professional experience. Our DP, Peter Mullet, our sound guy, had been doing sound for 30 years. Uh, it was a professional crew, and this outburst rocked them on their heels a bit and put a wedge mm-hmm. suddenly between them and Tom. Mm. What I yeah. learned soon after that is that Dwayne, the sound guy, and Peter, the cinematographer, were at loggerheads with each other because Peter and, and Peter kept wanting to do things in a wide shot. Tom wanted more close-ups. Dwayne was having a trouble. Where the fucking put the, the mic? So you, it was out of shot. Yeah. Get clean. Absolutely. You know, get clean, get clean audio on the set because you don't have the money in post. Right. So all the, exactly all the right. filmmaking rules. So yeah. I got upset and I didn't, we were literally going to rushes every night. We were shipping the film to a lab and it would take two days. We'd be seeing rushes two days late and I pulled it. I got angry at Tom. I didn't see rushes. And this is so bad, Debbie. He's the writer-director. I'm the producer-actor. Everyone looks to us for this family. Mm. And for two Mm -hmm. days, we're not speaking to each other. And then one Mm -hmm. morning, one morning, one of the sets was a bedroom in the picture house. And my bedroom was next door. And I had a great view of the ocean, and I would get up pre-dawn and just watch Heron standing on the beach and watch the sunrise and just remember not how tired I am and, you know, what work did I have on the list that day as a producer, and am I on camera today? Shit, i got to be ahead of that. And I walked into the bedroom to make sure, as an art director, and Tom was standing in there, and we had not spoken to each other. Oh, and prior to that... Two days earlier, when we had our little disruption, I um, I called him a, an egotistical fat prima donna. Oh boy! Hurt. Yeah, yeah. And he hurled he hurled an epithet at me about my ego. Yeah, and that stung. Yeah. So now here yeah. we are. Yeah. We are. We are. He's uh, between the window and the bed, and I just walk in the door. The small bedroom that we're using um, for a set. And I can't do that comic thing where I skid on my heels 180 and leave. We have work to do. And yeah. this is the first time we're confronted with each other. And not two words came out of each of our mouths. Both of us burst into tears. Both of us were hugging each other. Our friendship oh. was strengthened from that point on until he died. Um, Wow. I was able to. I was able to then talk to other department heads and and fix things and understanding and creative compromise. You know, because it's on a small thing when you're rocketing and trying to get a lot of shots in a day. You know, and 
Peter's aesthetic was truly wide shot. It wasn't laziness. He didn't, not that he didn't want to move in. Right. So Tom did have these battles, you know? And our relationship during the entire 18 days was often, as he was working with the crew setting up shots, I'm working with the actors running lines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By osmosis, by just letting them be. Very naturalistic piece. So just let them find a way to talk to each other. And But that was it. So I have to say, from being shot to having a director walk out of the studio with all of the footage behind my back, uh, <laughs> which he returned an hour later, uh, to yes. all the horrible things <laughs> that can happen. And, you know, you, you want to always play, yeah, uh, with better tennis players, but sometimes you don't, and you just try to be kind yeah. and try to do your work. This yes. is that yes. one moment. That and it's purely emotional. So that's my that's my story. Oh, and that is, and then the smaller bad experiences because they're they're not really up there. They just hamper yeah. your creative enjoyment. Are um, working with people that are not invested at all, and yeah. you know they're just they, they're like off in another world until action. It's like. Oh, oh, okay, what, like, okay, this line, like, that's how invested they are, and you just feel like, you know, I'm, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm trying to do, trying to accomplish, and what I would like to do in the scene, and I'm working hard for it, but it's not as though, just like you said, I don't have a tennis player, I'm basically mm. batting the, the ball against the wall in the garage, but, you know, I'm still going to do my best. And it's not like, oh, I'm better than anybody. I'm talking about people's investment in scenes. You know what I mean? Just Oh, absolutely. Just, you know, Whether it's, it's beyond calling it in. It's just like not present. No, yeah. If anything, they're just talking about their next job, which is the biggest pet peeve. I don't care what <laughs> level somebody's at if they're giving their all. I'm totally there for them. Like, you know what I mean? A thousand percent if they're better than me, if they're they're less experienced than me, it doesn't matter. Just if if everybody's giving their all then that's then I'm on board with it. But it's when people are like, Oh yeah, yeah, this is this is great. Oh, next uh month I'm working with blah 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 on da da da. Right. It's like, you know, get your head in the moment, dude. Like you are not gonna be going anywhere unless you know how to be in the moment creatively like that you have to you know what's going to show up seeing up, up on the screen i should say exactly what you put into it yeah yeah i mean one of my favorite quotes is and he's used it in different ways i love james Cagney, and he often referred to it's a job of work so you show mm. up for the work you have to be in mm. the moment that's all you're doing right then and yep. nobody cares about your next job. Nobody cares about what you had for lunch. Nobody cares about nope. you're arguing with your girlfriend and she's leaving you. you. Unfortunately, you. the good thing, the thing to go into is, because you and I in our careers, we've worked with all range of tennis players. We've worked with people who don't yeah. know what they're doing only because they don't have the experience. We have worked right. with some people who don't know what they're doing because they just don't have the talent. Sometimes maybe it is God-given, but sometimes it does take some experience. We've worked with some great people. But the point is, yeah. we're all there to make the best movie we can. 
Yes. We're all there. Yes. And the only thing I think that can consistently sabotage this is those occasions, and we've unfortunately opened this door and gone in, where the person running the show is somehow inept because of their ego. And that's what sabotage yeah. becomes. We see it on the professional. There's that famous video of David O. Russell arguing with Lily Tomlin and all the stories that mm-hmm. George Clooney has told. I mean, so it happens on all levels. And that yeah. is too bad. That is too bad. And that yeah. wastes my time, your time, everybody's time. But generally, I have found that people really are trying to do their best. Nobody intentionally sets out to make a bad film or a bad play no. or a bad book. No, no. They're really trying to do the best. Abs- so, yes, yeah, so absolutely. we as actors, we got to show up and play. Yes, and it goes, and you know, I'm I'm not bagging on actors because you could say that about crew, and I'm just spreading it around. In other words, I'm not I'm taking the focus off of just saying this about actors. It could be anybody, right. art direction. It could be anybody who's not invested. If you're not invested and you don't care, and as a matter of fact, you're sort of like trying to hang off of the set so you could, you know, drink your coffee and just talk because you're more interested in that than what's going on inside that frame. I know that's getting a little hardcore, but that's kind of like the only part Mm -hmm. that I like or I'm interested in. And Mm -hmm. to me, it's sort of like um, the fantasy is to have everybody on that page that would be amazing um and if you do then you know it translates to the screen and all of the work that you're doing um and everybody's doing will translate you can have a wonderful script it could fall flat for other reasons you could have great actors and you could have a terrible script or dp that can't capture the performance you could have, like, you know, tr- go on and on and on and on. But if everybody is, like, doing a thousand percent everything in their power to what's in that square frame, then there's just a certain magic that, can, that has the potential or that can come through. Or in the worst-case scenario, everybody's doing their best, and it, that translates to maybe the, the movie doesn't quite, even if it doesn't hit its mark. But you can ha- you if it's done sincerely, you've got this feeling about it, a certain feeling, and you know, and then you could bring up Ed Wood or somebody that you know everybody in Plan Nine was just they were they were there like in the it just and that's what that's what makes that movie memorable. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just does because it's there's a sincerity about it. And it doesn't even matter, does it hit the mark or not? There's a certain sincerity about a movie that, you know, everybody's invested in. And sometimes, you know, if we could just go, that's the core. That's the minimal that you want to go for. Talk about a tangent. Let's, let's switch it around. What was the best experience that you had? Well, you know, I'm going to say, wow, that's tough. But I might double back to that moment in Cold Harbor working on that film. <clears throat> you know, it um, maybe that was the best as well because it immediately the me and uh, Tom and me real I realized that it was based on all of this stress uh, that the trust between us was there. That in hindsight, it only strengthened our friendship. You know. Um, 
I've had a lot of really great little moments in my life as a director, maybe. Um, <clears throat> the most brilliant I am as a director tends to be with nothing to do with what happens on the stage or the screen. Mm -hmm. The most brilliant I have ever been as a director, I was directing uh, a play, Clifford Odette's Golden Boy. It's the one about the boxer. <clears throat> and yeah. Um, yeah. early scene of the early scene of the play, Lorna, the woman who will walks into Tom's uh, Tom Moody's office, who is the fight manager guy. She will eventually leave him and hook up with Joe Bonaparte. The fight. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in rehearsals. We're running scenes. Um, typical. We rehearse for four weeks. I think we had three week runs in my one theater company. And Patty, bless her soul, brilliant actor who was playing Lorna came, came to me to the came after rehearsal came to me very said Mark and I'd already adjusted a little bit of dialogue to help her. She was uncomfortable saying God damn and so just okay we can cut the God, you know, just little tiny things. Mm hmm And she said, I have a little problem in the scene with and remember this is a story on me about how brilliant I am as a director, so just I hope you're seated. She comes to me and she says, <laughs> you know when I walk in the door seated very and, solidly. <laughs> Very she says, you know when I, Go ahead. You know when I walk in the door and Tom kisses me? I said, yeah. I said, what? He's putting his tongue in my mouth. And I said, oh, shit. And I'm thinking. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm firing. The pistons are firing a million a nanosecond. And I said, I got it. Let me, let me just, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to. I'm going to tell him you're going to try something different. Remember, Lorna's coming in there. She's been thinking. This is, you know, leaving him is not a spur-of-the-moment thing. She's been premeditating this. So here's what I want you to do. Try this. When you come in the door and he comes in to kiss you, crosses the room to kiss you, turn and offer him your cheek. We'll get it. Let him react to it. Uh-oh, something's up with Lorna. So I went to the actor, who may be dead, this was a play I produced and directed in the 90s. And I told him, mm -hmm. this is what's going to happen. I, I said, I want to try it. He bought it, hook, line, and sinker. Saved mm -hmm. Patty from being kissed on the mouth, told the story. She didn't have to worry about him anymore. I think that was the most brilliant thought I've ever had on the floor as a director. But, I, I, you know, I, I've had wonderful moments on the set where, and it's funny listening to you talk, um, I have a good sense of what your set might be like with you as a director. You know, if, if, because we can all be, you know, we're racing the clock there. You know, when we're, at, when we're on films, actors and directors, we're making a million choices. We're making a million compromises to keep things open and fluid to capture while the camera's rolling something valuable, whether it's a flash in our eye, uh, you know, just something that can be used mm -hmm. in this. And so we try to make the sets, you know, as happy and comfortable as we can. And there's so many pressures, but just the way you were talking about as an actor trying to use, to have the freedom to be uh, in within the frame to, to, to do that, I get a sense of what your set sets might be like with you as a director. What was your best experience? Well, 
Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I haven't had, um, I've only made one movie. So it's not as though, you know, I have a lot to draw from, oh, this one versus that one. The one thing I can say is that the the most important thing to me, besides um, really trying my best to, um, because this is what interests me, uh, are details, like be it, um, you know, wanting one character's, it was all taking place in one uh, house, but it was supposed to be, you know, as you do locations, but it was actually two houses that were beside each other in the movie, but we were shooting in the same house. So one floor was created for one character and one floor was created for another one, the one that was supposed to be next door. So, I mean, the fun stuff to me is always in the detail. So it's like the one floor is, you know, old lady, literally uh, bought a machine that creates the the illusion of kind of dust floating particles in the air, like from every single detail possible to, you know, the other sort of streamlined, stark, darker, up and down, you know, edges as opposed to floral. And I love details. So I love working in them and, you know, getting them and and the symbolism of of them, the importance Mm -hmm. of them, that the audience can have like a whole other dialogue with the movie going on with their subconscious that way, uh, Mm -hmm. not just what the characters are doing or saying, and everything can have an effect. Um, My favorite thing, of course, was uh, working with the actors because that was really where my forte was, certainly, Mm -hmm. at that time. And so I I think, you know, in that regard, that was, working with the actors was, in fact, one of my favorite experiences. As an actor, I have a lot more to draw upon for that particular question. Uh, So, you know, it's hard to say because, like you said, you could break each um, sort of reason why into its own answer. In other words, it could be, what was your favorite um, experience emotionally, um, Mm -hmm. creatively? Um, One could even say financially or in all these different categories. So they're all different answers. But I guess I have to sort of overall say, okay, so the first time that I had this kind of like breakthrough as you always do throughout your career you have different levels of breakthroughs and so i had this one um during and right before and during um american nightmares so i was able to take certain things i didn't have access to before and i did so much improv in that movie uh scenes where they were just basically goes crazy in cemetery like you know and he trusted that I would know what to do. And because I was so prepared, I did. If I wasn't, then I probably would have had a much harder time. Um, but I knew this character so well. And so even though since then, I feel like I've done better work, you know, technically as an actor, I look at that kind of breakthrough freedom feeling and the... Um, excitement that you get from doing something that 
feels in the moment so pure. Um, yeah. yeah, I would I would probably just reckon to that as as a moment because it's a multifold. It's you know creatively freeing, having a breakthrough, um, and just having a very satisfying creative time. And like I said, I've had many since then, but to sort of have one where you've both had a breakthrough and a creative um, satisfaction at the same time in one movie, that, that kind of happened in that one. So mm. I would definitely have to give special props to that experience. And there's been many other ones since then where directors have, have let me sort of just they've liked what I've done with the character. They kind of let me go with it. And I really have a good time and fun. And that's always my favorite thing to do. So there's a number of ones I could tip my hat to for sure. And and great directors have allowed me to do that. But because of those things sort of came together in that particular experience, I would definitely point that one out too. Absolutely. And you kind of, I'm inferring, but you kind of answered something that was on my mind to ask, and that is that you like directing and you would like to direct some more films. I mean, I think that's kind of a, there's an obvious yes there, yeah? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely will be. Yeah, good. And I'm not finished yet either. I haven't made a film in a while, but um, I definitely uh, have some more that I want to do. I, I miss being on the set. Kind of like you, pandemic, you kind of miss being certain places that you loved and that are good comfort places. I I miss being on the set, and I miss the interaction of the creatives and, and all of that. Um. We take you now to Central Park. Here's a question I've always been curious about with actors, and, and typically the answers are very similar, but, you know, it's the old when did the acting bug bite you question. Did I, I, are you the kind of person that innately, dormantly, you are always an actor and it found you, do you think? Or do you think of it in another kind of way uh, when you actually stumble into it? Because uh, I'm just curious about when you realized, and you've mentioned it several times uh, in this chat, that that moment, you know, is what you're focused on. You know, when the camera is mm -hmm. in that frame, what you're doing. So when did the bug bite you? Or was it always just kind of, you were, it was a sleeper cell and it just, it awakened? Well, I guess both. Um, I certainly, as a child was making, you know, the silent, um, I guess they would be Super 8 movies yeah. with a little camera that my parents, um, I think it belonged to an aunt or uncle because we couldn't really afford that, but I know that I, I was using one and I was sort of making silent music videos to Alice Cooper songs. Um, <laughs> so, but, but, but besides that, that yeah, I was like, you know, pretending to saw someone's head off. Like, uh, it's all 
complete Alice Cooper-inspired uh, stuff. Um, but not until 1980, when I was on the set of Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, did I truly get the acting bug. And even though I've said this many times, it bears repeating because anybody who's listening who has any interest or is already directing, um, here's the thing. Like, you could take a, a street kid, they could sort of fall into a three-month uh, extra role in a movie, um, and you can change their life just by the first assistant director. Lou Adler was the director, and then Tommy, mm-hmm. and I forget his last name, but I'll never forget his first name, said to me after first few days there was a scene oh look like you're doing something you know and the other kids that were you know doing the same thing as me were really phoning it in they had no idea what was expected of them they just thought it would be all fun and exciting just to be there but they weren't Mm -hmm. like you know engaged in in actually acting let's say so uh you know i was really throwing myself into it and i i just that's what you do. Like, this is amazing. This is great. And he came over and he said, just to, you know, an extra. He said to me, that was really good. And I was mm-hmm. just like one of, you know, a dozen, maybe dozen and a half girls that were doing the same thing. But mm-hmm. I was just doing it so hard, so to speak. So engaged. In and in the moment. And, you know, it was the first time in my life at that moment that anybody said that I did something that was good mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it had such a deep impact that it like, I thought, wow, I could, I could do something that that's, that's good. I, this mm-hmm. is, it, it changed me. It changed me. I was like, okay, I'm not going to, you know, die in the streets. I'm not going to, like, whatever. I'm not being melodramatic. It may sound like it, but I'm being literal. Like, it gave me immediately a focus, a desire, um, an intent in my life, and a direction, all in that moment of his kindness that he didn't have to bother doing because he was busy as hell, you know? So there you go. A small act of kindness can change somebody's life. That's absolutely true, and for people who don't know, the AD, assistant director, really runs the show on a set. They have to have Mm -hmm. their eye on everything, and they are often in charge of directing the extras and background action. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, for someone to notice, to be able to feed, to, to give you that, is absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Incredible. Here's a stupid question. Here's a question I hate when people ask me this. Okay. We are, how to put this delicately, we are of a wonderful, experienced age. We have lived (laughs) life. Yes. We have an enormous amount of experience. We know our way around sets and we know a little about human beings. and um, So as actors, what kind of, as an actor, what kind of roles 
are left in your bucket list? What kind of roles do you want to do that you haven't quite? Because in other conversations, as we've talked, or rather you have talked to others about your career, you know, it's very true, you know, in the epochs and the ages that we were brought up for an attractive, talented white woman as yourself. There weren't really the kind of characters, and I think you've mentioned this before, you know, this Ripley and Alien. Um, far and in between, and the world has changed in 30 years, you know, with uh, mm-hmm. wonderful, strong roles for women and women roles. The world is changing for the better in those ways. And um, me, you know, being a gentleman in my 50s, being a white man in my 50s, I've got, uh, there's a lot of crap still out there for me. I'm not just strictly, you know, even though if you were to look at a photograph of me right now, I'm ready to play King Lear. You know, I'm I'm all white and <laughs> long-haired. And I literally could go rage at thunderstorms with my fool beside me. And I do want to play Lear one day, but dream on. Um, my, my point is, is that we are, to a degree, uh, in, in control of our careers. We can make things happen. I mean, so is there a kind of role or a specific uh, kinds of parts that you are looking forward to doing as we move forward? Yeah, I mean, there really is. I mean, there really is so many. Wow, there is so many that uh, technically and and rightfully are too young for me now, but are right. actually yeah. being done now. Um, with that being said, I mean, there is a lot more to do now than there ever was. And part of it is really because, you know, you don't have to carry the burden of um, either uh, literally being or or certainly made to feel like you are, you know, the sex drive of the movie. So with that, you know, huge baggage on your shoulders. Well, speak for yourself, because um, <laughs> because most of no, it like you, beautiful mature <laughs> women. So hush, hush. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, there, well I, no, but I understand. Know. I didn't I know, know Hollywood you. did, but you know, I, I know. What you're saying. <laughs> there, there is. There, hey, listen, it's awesome because there is uh, people for everybody in every way, shape, yep. and form and age. So that's an amazing, beautiful thing that I love. But um, but it actually is a burden when that's all you're there for. So now right. that I don't feel that burden, it's actually more freeing in a lot of ways. So for me, it's like, you know, it's it may sound very stereotypical because, you know, I've said things in the past like, oh, I want to be a mad scientist. Then I was in, I was wanting Killer Rack. <laughs> Loved it. Loved yeah. it. So I do have like certain characters like that. If um, you know that that for meaty roles, I mean, gee, they're just I, and I don't I don't mean literally. I mean like this, like like um, you know, Virginia Woolf. I mean, all mm-hmm. you could say. I mean, those are examples, and they could be literal on stage, but they could also be like these like these characters in a different scenario in a film sure. or something. So, I mean, just something that's super meaty that you are not, um, 
like in the beginning of the career where I was just saying, oh, you're there as the token, whatever. Okay, when you're older, you could be the token, whatever. And then fill in the blank. Mother, blah, 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 you know, whatever the case may be. Grandmother, whatever the case may be. But within now, within um, uh, any particular age group, um, there are like there there are just some meaty, deep, dark stuff like to really like sink your teeth into that that you know mm-hmm. maybe we'll get to the part where you know it was um, all those years ago and there was great roles um, even that Cassavetes was writing for women or that you know oh. some of these greats were writing for women yeah. that that could be done and resurged again. And that you are seeing more of that now, like certainly with American Horror Story. And mm-hmm. I know I'm talking about, you know, bigger budgeted things, which is great. You know, that would be ideal. But, you know, they are writing for great, the meatiest roles in the projects are for, you know, women that are not 20. So, I mean, there's there's always that, too, is that, that you know, it's a, it's a great thing. Now, when, will that translate to the indie world? Yeah, I think um, certainly eventually I, I almost see the um, indie world in that one sense, while they've always had better roles for women, in whether you want to call it in the horror world or, or cult or indie world, whatever you want to call right. it, there's always been better roles for women than in mainstream. I find now switching it around, what I'm calling mainstream, um, there's great roles for women that aren't 20. And so yeah. what I'm not, I'm seeing, I'm seeing more of, but not quite to the fullest uh, extent that it could go. I'm seeing like a lot of the indie uh, filmmakers still kind of trying to hang on to, um, well, I'm worried about selling the movie. So I, you know, got to have the TNA factor in there. Um, lesser and lesser but it's it's interesting because the uptick on that in the indie world is slower i find um because they have less to to bank on or they think they do they have this this idea that they do so that's one thing that i find kind of interesting um what's in your bucket list i mean i know that you said lear <laughs> we don't have enough time i have a long no, you know, okay. I've been, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been, an, I've been an actor for. Good night, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> and next week on the program, yeah. we <laughs> we'll um, part yeah. two of Redfield doing his listicle. There's so many roles, um, but yeah, I'm confronted by the reality that I'm in my fifties, so uh-huh. I ain't playing. And I'm using these as an example, not that I would want to do them. As a matter of fact, I've never wanted to do Hamlet as, a, as a, an actor. I've been more interested. I've done Prospero and The Tempest twice, which is my favorite Shakespeare. I want to do Lear. I'm still young enough, enough to do Macbeth, um, and I and I want to do Macbeth in a couple of different uh, ways. This is an audio drama I'd love. I've been working on a film of Macbeth on paper for 15 years or longer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm inventing characters, and here's the thing I love about audio drama, and I can't wait to get to work with you. I never think about age. I mean, all of these characters in the audio dramas do have ages. They they are anchored somewhere, but mm-hmm. 
we we don't have to we don't have to we can work in our our pajamas. We don't. Do it. So if the character's in their twenties, <laughs> it's, it's ambiguous. The only yeah. time the it's all about quality of voice and 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 uh, capability of the actor. The only time right. the voice of the actor with age comes into it is when the character is a child or very young or very old. And I found right. an actor uh, who is just in college, about to graduate, and I swear if she plays her cards right. Her name is Izzy Newell, and I've written this thing called The Sister's Risk, and it's, mm-hmm. um, we're launching it as an audio drama, and um, Polly Risk is 17, and the actor playing, voicing Polly is close to 50. You would never know it. And Patsy Risk is 12, and I found Izzy. And if she plays her cards right, and she's in New York or Los Angeles where there's a lot of voice work, she could be a June Foray. She has mm, a natural, wow. she's embraced a natural childlike voice without trying, and she's a good actor. Wow. And because yeah. I'm terrified, I've worked with children before, and I've worked with some wonderful children. Um, but here, I've got a mature actor that can sound 12, you know? Because uh, it's all yeah. punk and they yeah. go, they're, they're brilliant scientists and they have an airship and it's 1910 and I'm hoping to do a, a, a novel, a young adult novel. So it's a whole thing I've been developing. So at only those times, but when you and I are doing audio drama, um, other than the fans that know us and know, have a memory or a favorite image locked in their head, they will create a new image that doesn't exist in their head when they listen to yes. Alexandra in I Married a Fly, which you and I will be doing, or you know, any of these yes. things. And um, they'll come up with their own images, and that's what I love about that. So otherwise, if it's got some meat and some blood and I can pay a phone bill, no. If, if it, you know, money has become <laughs> you know, a question in accepting stuff, but I am, I'm... I'm also ready to jump. I'm going to jump this question. Yeah, I'm, I miss being on a film set. Uh, and uh, I just did a, what do you call it, Zoom, a, a virtual reading of a new play a few weeks ago. It was good to work with somebody else. You know, yeah. and just make, even yeah. though it was a, a play reading on Zoom, I was making a little actor choice and I was an actor, you know, and, and it's yeah. nice to be yeah. in somebody else's hands. We take you now to one of Redfield's favorite restaurants in New York, the Twisted Corkscrew. Um, speaking yeah. of roles, have you or have you now or have you ever? Do you, when you were coming up now that stick with you? Role models, um, people that inspire you, or if if there was a imaginary bulletin board and you put their picture, or their name up, or a quote, have you? Do you have role models for life? For your you work? know, it, oh, it's it's it really is a great question, and I wish I had a laundry list of women uh, to mm-hmm. pull from. Let's, 
but I don't. And it's not because there hasn't been amazing women, but there, I wasn't um, privy at an early age to know the works of a, a Betty Davis or, you know, one of the greats that were from an era before me or perhaps two. I don't know what eras exactly exactly are as far as like a number of years but well for many for many davis 30s 30s to the 70s so uh, yeah 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 that's true that's true um but i was just you know i did not have a lot of education film knowledge tv even tv knowledge i mean i just really went from being in a home that didn't have uh, a tv for the most part we did but not always to foster care system so my my knowledge you some, came you had some catching up a lot that, yeah. later. Yeah, well, yeah, it came later. So I would say that, and then by the time I was really um, looking at uh, and being inspired by performances and people, it was it was later on, and I would say it was may, probably as late as the 80s to even think like that because before that it was Mm -hmm. just about and i do mean literally survival so i would say that i would have to jump directly to people like you know bruce lee if it was you know uh characters and movies it was typically men not because they were men but because the roles at that particular time were right. done by men like there was just nothing going on for women you know like my favorite movie of all time is taxi driver so <laughs> and the and my favorite type of movie of all time is sort of like the underdog or the loner um the outcast the right. you know all, uh, that's my favorite kind of movie ever. Loved Joker, loved um, Shutter Island. There's a whole I can go on and on for another hour, I which you. you know I, I can't, you. and you know we don't have the time for that. But um, so my my favorite type of role you would never see in the time that that I was being inspired by such a genre uh, and that I could relate to it. I certainly never saw any women starring in movies uh, about a loner or an underdog. Now, it could be argued, and I'm sure they exist, but I wasn't, like, privy to them at that time. So I kind of would would go down that road. I don't know if that is really answering the question perfectly, but perhaps if you saw me who inspired you, then I would understand. No, no, absolutely. Um... I get your, I get the colors of all of the central characters in the films that you mentioned, and it gets, I don't want to get way off on a tangent, but it gets my wheels turning. I would like to will some sort of film in existence that I either act and direct, but you're acting in, and I want to work with you on a film, and just that little piece got wheels turning that I just want to keep simmering on a back. I don't even want to share with what I've been thinking. I'm sorry to be such a, a tease, but, um, and, and I snickered, oh, and I snickered only because of Vampires Incorporated. And as soon as you mentioned Taxi Driver, <clears throat> just things we had been talking about, because as I, as I work on scripts, I, I talk to Jennifer Rouse about sound design and music at the same time so that she can stay ahead of things and think and, and, and create. And, um, 
like I said, everything about Vampire Hunters Incorporated is New York for me. My fantasy of New York, mm. you know. Um, yeah. I, my answer, yeah. my answer is loaded. It's weird, and we don't have time to dissect it. But it's Walt Disney. You know. Um, Very interesting. And and I can sum it up because I have loved all things Disney, from the art direction of the park of Disneyland, the first park that Walt walked in. The art direction fascinates me. The fact that it was built in one year, where an office complex anywhere in the world takes five years from planning mm-hmm. to building. I mean, it's amazing to me. And movie makers designed the park. And yeah. then out of that, people went to school to learn how to design shopping malls and theme parks. But So for, for me to say Walt Disney, it's a, the, the boxes that get checked. A storyteller, actor, risk taker mm-hmm. make it happen will it into existence thank god he had yep. his brother there to deal with money in the banks to make things happen because he wasn't good at that but um you know that that's it because and and then i look at my attempts my career actor storyteller make movies i, I draw paint cartoons when i was a kid when you were 14 when i was 14 I think I had always want. I thought I always knew I was an actor. I think that was just somehow it just came out that way. My parents met doing theater. My mother was stage managing. My father uh, played a role. Uh, I'm an army brat. He was down at a uh, station nearby, and uh, they did a production of Anti Mame, and he played Patrick. And my mother was stage managing. She had only been in the country a couple of years, and um, I think I wanted to be. And I said this, so it's not that I think. I wanted to either be a cartoon animator or I wanted to be a magician, a stage magician. Mm-hmm. Back in those days when we were teenagers in the 70s, and even to, a little bit to the early 80s, but in the 70s you still had. I mean, Doug Henning did well on Broadway in the 70s, and you had. But magicians were still on television. You could still see live shows. Yes, they were denigrated. My father came to me and said, You don't want to be a magician, they get no respect. Um, he was also mm-hmm. in the set to me when I was when he saw a series of a- things that I was acting in in college. He said, and I'll never forget this, and I forgive him for this, mm-hmm. but I understand it. He said to me, mm-hmm. and I'm in college. He said, I'm so glad you finally found something you can do. Meaning, I yeah, and yeah. it's because you know I was the firstborn, but. Uh, I played baseball and I ran, and he kept urging me, oh, you're, you're so fast, you could be a professional runner. So where the fuck is this coming from? You're an artist. You make ceramic sculptures. Stop pushing me into, you know, but it was just a weird, it was a double-edged thing. Not as powerful yeah. as Tommy coming right. to you on the set and saying, I'm watching what you're doing, and it's you're really, uh, that's good stuff. But it, Keep it up. But it is. But it's similar. It changed but your it life. Is. No, it's, yeah. it's for something to resonate in your soul. That's all that matters. Like, yeah, the, the, maybe the telling, I'm not even saying it's true, but maybe the telling of one story versus another story seems more almost cinematic, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't as profound. It did it touch yeah. the soul of the person, and that that's the key right there. Oh, and before and I forget, key, no, I'm sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, ahead. I know you before you. No, I just wanted please. to spit this out before because uh, mm, this must have must cross your mind over the years. There's got to be the, your story 
And let's just be overly simplistic. Debbie on the streets, that story, <sighs> Underbelly, that's got to be a film one day. Oh, yeah. You've had to have oh, thought yeah. about that. And anything I can oh, do to yeah, yeah. that. Any, anything I can do, even if I'm just a fan on the sidelines cheering it on to will it into existence. Um, just will it. Just keep willing it. Because, you know, yeah, yeah. it's just going to it's gonna, gonna It will happen. Oh, it will happen. For sure it will happen. <coughs> Um, mm. Yeah, one one step at a time. The, the book coming out next year, and then we'll Absolutely. go from there. But <laughs> but Mark, I wanna, I really wanna thank you for taking time to talk to me today. Oh, Debbie, you're more and, than welcome. I love and, talking to you, and I'm so looking forward to working with you on these audio dramas. So am I. I am so excited. I can't even tell you. And thank you, thank you so much for allowing me. To, to be a part of them. They're so they're so fun. I mean, who who wouldn't want to do them? It's my favorite topic, Poe, and come on, why? Let's go. Let's go, Mark. Let's do this. You got it. You got it. All right, Debbie, thank you so much. Um, the future is looking brighter with you in my life, and uh, I can't I, I can't uh, I can't wait to hear the cut uh, and, and, and get these stories that we'll be doing together and these audio dramas together. And um, yeah, let's, um, I, I, I will find a film for you in the future. I'm not finished making movies either. And I would, I would love to work with you in person. Um, yeah, so, uh, that definitely. As they say, as the, as the folks down South say, Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know it, Mark, and I can't wait to start on our audio projects for step one. We'd like to thank Debbie Rashan for joining us on the podcast, and we look forward to working with her on I Married a Fly and The Autumn of Edgar Allan Poe. And we thank you for listening and subscribing to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. This is Jennifer Rouse. Until next time, be safe and keep creating.